Please excuse the sound quality of this episode. We hope you still benefit. I put, I think, too much stock in what other people thought of me throughout college in a variety of different ways. And it got to a point where I didn't realize I was doing kind of self-sabotaging or debilitating behaviors or activities, but that it really stemmed from kind of trying to people please. Welcome to Unlocking College Life, real talk about all things college. The best part of this podcast is that your voice is part of the show. Other students care what you have to say. So through your questions, your feedback, and your real talk, we all grow together. Let's dive in with your hosts, Joy and Alona. Welcome back to Unlocking College Life. Today, we are joined by a student and also a fellow podcaster, Jonah Jacobs, to talk a little bit about his college experience. In particular, he has an interest in men's mental health in the college environment. And so I will let Jonah introduce himself and then we'll take it from there. Hey, Joy, Alona, thank you so much for having me. It's really a treat to join another podcast devoted to such an important mission. So I graduated from Michigan in May of 2021. And I moved to Chicago for my full-time consulting job in July of 2021. And I have a pretty challenging time with transitions. And so when I moved in about two weeks into my kind of post-grad city life, I just found myself kind of struggling for finding meaning and kind of who I was outside of college in still this kind of like funky post-COVID world. And um, the co-host of my podcast, Take It On, one of my best friends, Reed Milkins, he's a student at Ohio State, but he felt the same way. And we had a night out together. We spoke about it the next morning and we both got really energized about the prospect of communicating how we were feeling about our mental health struggles and not to kind of pigeonhole those struggles to just kind of traditional generalized depression, anxiety, but just kind of the gambit of the various thoughts and ways in which our mental influences our reality and our physical and emotional health. And so we decided to launch Take It On in the summer, right before conveniently I started a consulting gig, which has been very hard to manage, but very helpful at the same time in the sense that I make sure I prioritize my mental health and well-being at work and it really does have a powerful effect on my productivity. And so when I finally started really taking my mental health inventory regularly through my podcast, I just noticed transformative effects on kind of who I was and really finding myself. And I see the spillovers across my life. And I don't like to have many regrets, but I do wish that in college I had a better, better sense of kind of what my mental health needs were and so I'm really glad we can do this and use this podcast as a lever to get other students to kind of dig deeper into their mental health. Welcome, welcome. And thanks so much for the introduction. We are eager to hear so much more from you. I do want to hear about this particular part that you just closed with, and that is sort of hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Sort of what do you now know about your mental health in college that you didn't know then? Things that make sense now. But I also, and I'm like the queen of double questions, I suppose. I would love to know more about actually the senior year and what you went through 
and the post-graduation sort of identity pieces, because I certainly, we are recording this as the semester will start wrapping up and many of our students are actually graduating or moving on, going to grad school, so on and so forth. And yes, you have the traditional senior writers and all the elements of that, but I'm really seeing a lot more with students when it comes to that identity stuff. And I think part of it is because for many folks, their path has been so laid out or planned out, right? Like, you know what you need to do in high school to get to college. And then you have somewhat of a sense of what you need to do in college to get to graduate school or apply for a job. But that can sort of that kind of a structure can end after college. And so I think that those pieces play into that as well. And so I'm really eager to hear from you on all of this. Yeah, absolutely. And I totally understand the double question. It happens all the time. And I can hopefully kind of trace my answer from the first into the second, I think kind of seamlessly. So to kind of look back on my college experience, I think that I did not realize how insecure I was at various points throughout my college timeline, I'd say. And a lot of that insecurity tied into kind of, I put I think too much stock in what other people thought of me throughout college in a variety of different ways. And it got to a point where I didn't realize I was doing kind of self-sabotaging or debilitating behaviors or activities, but that it really stemmed from kind of trying to people please and do what I thought was the social norm and what was expected of me. So my freshman and sophomore year, I think were largely defined by that in like a social, like a deep kind of macro social sense. I had joined a fraternity and I'm incredibly close with my fraternity brothers, some of my best friends throughout college, but some of my individual choices and behaviors in that time, I think stemmed from a desire to kind of make a name for myself and be popular and be well known and be well liked. And that involved compromising some values I think I had developed from high school. I got a scholarship to debate at Michigan, and it was a really prestigious option and offer, and debate really defined a lot of my high school life. I wasn't really partying or in the traditional social scene in high school as much as when I got to college. I was so excited to kind of dive right into this new and exciting Greek life scene, and that meant, I think, kind of overcorrecting and overcompensating. I would frequently be out of town for debate tournaments at Michigan, and I would get a deep sense of fear of missing out or FOMO, which looking back on it is, I think, such a ridiculous idea, but it's very powerful at the time and when you're going through it. And so when I'd be gone at these debate tournaments, I would be really, really stressed out that I wasn't maximizing my social time. I was missing out on key friendships and relationships and that caused me to resent debate a little bit, which forced a really unhealthy, stressful relationship with it and my team members and my coaches. And then on the other side, when I was back in town, I would try to drink as much as if I was there for both weekends. I would try to be as social as if I was for both weekends. And I think a lot of that just really stemmed from, like I said earlier, just caring way too much about what other people thought of me and then letting those perceptions dictate my actions. And so I look back on my freshman, sophomore, my whole college experience really very fondly, but those aspects 
I think after graduating, I didn't realize how much like of what I did was determined by my opinions and perceptions of other people. And so then when COVID hit, that was the first time I really, like away from my traditional college setting where I'm constantly an extrovert, doing, 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 balancing debate, my social life, my academics. I was on student government. I was very involved in the Jewish Resource Center on campus, just constantly doing. And now I have time to really just kind of sit and like reflect on who I am and my values and the person I was in college. And I'm doing this in my childhood home, surrounded by family. And that was the first time I really got, I took proper inventory on kind of who I was outside of everything else. Like I wasn't defined by these people that I constantly predicated my decisions off of. And I realized I needed to kind of do some work on myself, got way more involved in fitness and exercise. I started reading a lot more, kind of really becoming more in line with that person I was before college, before I started drinking a lot, before I started doing other stuff with my fraternity brothers. And that was really powerful for me. I realized that the relationship I was in wasn't really the best for me. I realized that I didn't want to be drinking nearly as much as I had been ahead of time. And I realized I wanted to be more involved in the activities that I was doing in quarantine, kind of prioritizing a close relationship with family, caring about my sleep, like realizing that I am such a different person when I get like seven and a half, eight hours of sleep versus the like, oh, I can go out on a Thursday night and be at my 9 a.m. Friday class and feel the same. And so then when I went back to school my senior year to go on campus, I felt this really strong fundamental tension between this person that I started becoming more aligned with during the spring and summer of 2020 and kind of who I thought I was supposed to be back at school, which again was really defined by my friends and what I thought and wanted other people to think of me. So my senior year was really challenging, actually. I felt senioritis, but again, it was more... I didn't feel as strongly of a senioritis that I thought other people felt. And so I would just constantly oscillate back and forth between the person I wanted to be and kind of had the gut instinct I was more in touch with that was more family oriented, cared more about taking care of myself and not like withdrawing, but just being social in a different way. And then being that like constant life of the party, party animal energy person that knows everyone and talks to everyone that I thought was expected of me. And so kind of going back and forth was really challenging on my mental health and kind of my behaviors. And I would say around my birthday last year, like February, March, before I graduated, I was just really, really unhappy and decided that I needed to kind of pick a path. Like I can't just keep criticizing myself for not being the person that I think people think I should be or being the person I wanted to be. And so I kind of chose the person that I wanted to be and has had a transformative effect on my life and my ability to kind of, I'm reading a book right now called The Courage to Be Disliked. And I think I sort of embody that now where it's like, if I need to kind of say no to plans or to, to drinking a lot, I get like, I feel empowered from it almost. And I kind of just like feel like I'm going down a more calm, stable river of life. And that was huge defining moment for me. And as I go down that river and care less about what I want other people to think of me, it's allowed me to find meaning in my post-grad life in a much different way. You were saying, Alona, the path that's not as strongly defined as it is for you, like middle school to high school, high school to college, college to 
the extracurriculars, the internships, the job offers, realizing that I need to find meaning in ways that supports who I am and recognizing that it's not a one-size-fits-all to what my friends are doing in a post-grad element, what my coworkers are doing, but that it really is unique and should be tethered to kind of what makes me tick has really allowed me to do so and just not think as much about that I should be on a particular path. A long-winded answer. I'm sure there's a lot to cover there, but I hope that provides some insight. It was excellent. Thank you so much for sharing so much. And I know that Joe is ready to jump in with our follow-up questions because there's so much and so rich here. But you know, one thought that kept going through my mind, because I have worked with students who were part of the same student government that you have or were over the years. And I sort of wish that they could hear you then about the struggle about yes we talk about FOMO like that's a, not a new word but I'm not sure we talk about it really this openly really this in the moment and the oscillation and sort of being so torn back and forth and really not being anywhere if that makes sense you know fully present in either one of those paths well yeah and I think that's kind of what I was wanting you to come back around to is we can talk about this in hindsight but I think what you're trying to get at is you actually did notice it when it was happening. But sort of what I hear you saying is that there wasn't really a space that was created to talk about it. And I think this also connects to how men show up too. So I would be curious, like if you could go back noticing, oh yeah, the tension was already there, but you didn't really know what to do with it. What would have helped? What conversations could have happened in those spaces? Because we've talked with some other students who said like, someone has to be the person to like make this okay to name and that it's not all performative and like, I'm the cool guy at the party all the time. What would have helped back then? And what are you hoping students to take from this now? It's a great question. And it's really complicated. I think that I wish I understood that taking care and like understanding my mental health needs didn't rely on a professional diagnosis that I had something quote unquote wrong with my mental health, that I wasn't clinically depressed, that I didn't have a generalized anxiety disorder, but that I was living life and experiencing things that were challenging and having thoughts that I wish left my headspace. And recognizing that is all that really needs to be there in order to feel like you can have wrestling with your mental health. And I think if I had recognized that my lived experience and how it was affecting my mental space was something that I could just communicate to a friend without recognizing that, oh, I need to go see a therapist. I need to get a diagnosis and receive medication. I think it would have been really, really helpful to be, I think, flattening the distinction between like a very rigid clinical understanding of mental health and what we're doing right now would have encouraged me to be a lot more vulnerable. And I think that vulnerability, especially for other men, would have gone miles towards just recognizing some of the thought patterns I was having and being more willing to confront them. And I want to make a really quick comment on FOMO here because it's something that I wish if I could go back and tell every college student who experiences FOMO is not necessarily a strategy to kind of like defeat FOMO. I think as someone who like now doesn't really feel like they're super influenced by FOMO, of course I feel FOMO. I think it's really hard not to. Like even my parents talk about sometimes like of them experiencing FOMO. I think it's kind of natural. It's just now that it's so prevalent with social media, it has a bigger name. 
but I would challenge students to really reflect on what that FOMO means. Are you really worried that you are missing out on a memory or an experience that you will not ever get? Or are you more afraid of saying no and explaining your other commitment as a priority to you? For me and my debate experience, as I look back on it, I really struggle to see if I was so just worried that I would miss out on memories and friendships that I would not otherwise get while I was at debate tournaments, or was I just sort of insecure that I had to communicate to my fraternity brothers and sorority girls that I was interested in that I was going to a debate tournament because I kind of associated that as sort of nerdy and not really party energy and socializing. And I really think it was more the latter, that I was kind of hesitant and scared to communicate my other priorities and values. And so I think once you get that confidence to say no and realize that you're the center of your universe and you need to make the decisions that are best for you and it's okay to let some folks down, especially when letting them down is just not going to a party one night, it becomes a lot easier, I think, to reconcile that FOMO and just like pinpoint where it's coming from. It's an interesting term you use, letting people down if you don't go to a party. I mean, that's one heck of a burden. Yeah, I think so too. And when you having these conversations with other men being that vulnerable, like speaking that into existence, you sort of realize how silly that idea is. These are your friends that you're partying with. Are you really letting them down because you can't go out one night? Of course not. But when these ideas are kind of cluttered in your headspace, it can be really hard to ascribe them that precise meaning that you would otherwise in a conversation and makes it more challenging to act on. You've mentioned this a couple times, and I think it's really important going back to like you feeling insecure and not knowing quite what to do with that. You did mention sometimes that did play into how much you drank. And I think so many college students need to hear that because I guess, how did you know when like, yeah, you're just going out and having a good time and it was no big deal. And how did you know when you were like, oh, that was actually a behavior that was masking these other things. And maybe you couldn't name it exactly then as you can now, but almost signs to look for in oneself or maybe even in a friend where that's not playing out the way they're really wanting it to. Yeah, definitely. I think the biggest source of that tension was when I realized When I would have, when I would look back on the nights where I didn't really want to go out and party and drink a lot, and then I ended up doing it and drinking a lot. It was not the kind of thing where, okay, like I'm not really feeling it, but there's this party tonight. Okay, like so I'll, I guess I'll show up for an hour, two hours, and have a beer or two. It was the exact opposite. It was, I would show up, have a beer or two, and then say, you know what, I've already had a beer or two. I feel kind of awkward. I might as well have quite a few more drinks. And then once I had quite a few more drinks, my decision-making is already impaired. I forget my reticence to going out, whatever those reasons were, probably continue drinking, probably don't get much sleep. And then my next day is completely thrown off both physically, physical health-wise, and then kind of mentally, because I would look back and just have a lot of self-criticism and self-loathing for my ability to so easily kind of fall back into those kind of poor behaviors. And that would also be kind of like a mental game of gymnastics I would have to play as well. And 
really just looking back on those nights where I would think like, wow, I can't believe like I drank that much. I got a night that like, what actually happened? What was the need for that? And Joy, we spoke about this on my podcast. I really do believe it came from almost like what I was saying earlier, just a sense of insecurity, not feeling confident enough in myself that a more sober me would be as fun or social as my friends and prospective friends would want or expect of me. And it becomes such a self-fulfilling prophecy because then you get to the point where you feel like you're, these people in your orbit only see you and value you for that person that is a little bit wild. And that means you feel like you don't really have margin for error to be less wild. And there were just nights I would look back and just hate that I... I couldn't really remember every detail and wanted to sort of take back. And it was those nights where I wanted to like take back how much I drank that I think really drive home why I was drinking so much. And it was to kind of mask some of that insecurity. A couple of different things you're touching on. I think it speaks to the importance of having a goal when you go out and sort of what do you want and do not want out of the drinking. It sounds like some of that was going on for you and ultimately sometimes ended up out the window, which can happen, right? I think the fascinating piece that I find when working with students or really anyone who maybe wants to drink differently is that, particularly with students though, that if you have a couple of drinks for the folks that can actually manage, right, alcohol use, Drinking more does not mean more fun. And it's exactly what you're speaking to, right? Like that the couple of beers that make you bust, you might have fun with your friends, but the more you drink, you might actually end up more sloppy, regretful, obviously, sometimes blacked out and in dangerous situations. So it is the paradox that you were speaking to that it doesn't always make you more fun. And I also appreciate you sort of the ongoing pressure and boom, now I got to show up like that, I guess, all the time so that people value me that way. And it's interesting because I also often hear students tell me that when you look back at college, sometimes those drinking buddies do not last beyond the drinking times. You may realize there's actually not that much in common otherwise besides some of the drinking events. So there are interesting layers to this. Yeah, definitely. Something I guess I want to say really quick that helped me help clarify and I think changed some of my drinking habits post-college that I wrote down. I have a list that I use to kind of guide my daily life of just my, like my therapist and I kind of work through this, my values, the things that I care about and prioritize. And it's about, it's seven, seven values that I want to orient my life around like a compass, my North stars, if you will. And as I went through that exercise and I look back on it, really realizing the way in which drinking is or getting drunk, being out of control with your drinking, feeling the pressure to drink. Those aspects are so out of sync with those values that I try to live by. And really having an understanding and honing that in, just really powerful in in changing my behavior. Because I realized that getting to being sloppy and not remembering aspects of my night while I was drinking was just fundamentally incompatible with the person that I wanted to be. And recognizing that significantly changed my habits. And so just having a better, more confident, secure sense of self, I think goes a long way. Well, that clarity, right? Like you're talking about clarity. And I think working with values is so important. Alona and I, you know, center on that a lot. 
But what I also was thinking as you were talking was maybe inside some of those values for you might have been, because you talked about earlier about the book being okay with being disliked, or I can't remember what it was. But even when we think about when students are trying to, I don't know, sort of impress others or aren't feeling confident, there is a piece we have to accept, which is that it could have been if you said, yeah, I'm on the debate team or like, actually, I don't want to drink. There might have been friends that are like, may not connect with you anymore and that that's okay. But that's hard. I think that's what I'm trying to get at is how do you help students actually be okay with that? That it's not about what they think. It's you being your authentic self. And that sometimes means losing friends. Yes, definitely, Joy. I think a big part of it is recognizing that a lot of the insecurities about what other people think of you kind of stem from your ego and thinking that everyone else is thinking about your actions and decisions when at the same time, they're likely just thinking about themselves and what other people are thinking about them, sadly. And so when you're able to kind of move back from a situation, I read a book called Chatter. I think a Michigan professor authored it about kind of the voice in your head. And so when you kind of psychologically distance from yourself, instead of thinking like, oh, I'm so worried what they're thinking, instead of like, Jonah, if you go to this debate tournament, your friends are probably going to be living their lives in Ann Arbor. And as they're on their fifth beer and having the time of their lives at an unprecedented party, they're not going to say, wow, Jonah is really missing out on this. I just can't imagine being as close to them after this. Just when you really just like fly on the wall with yourself and take a step back of kind of how really ridiculous when you put it in reality, these ideas are, it provides that clarity. But at the same time, if you don't, those feelings are powerful and they're profound and they just gain power when they're in your head. And so if you feel just kind of like some discomfort having these conversations with your friends in a way that if you feel uncomfortable or unable to kind of have a formalized mental health conversation, just like this in like a casual way, wow, FOMO, like kind of weird. And just kind of like unpacking it in a vulnerable, serious, but casual sense, I think can go a long way with your friends. And then Joy, I guess I just want to kind of evoke here that we talked about that I think is really important is that like drinking really is not good or bad in certain circumstances. I think objectively, there's a point of drinking where it is bad and is unhealthy. And for some people that just cannot drink, whether that's in from a physical, mental or emotional standpoint. Yes, drinking is certainly bad for those folks. But when you kind of approach and orient drinking, there are nights where you may have one or two more drinks than you intended. And the next day, you're okay. You're not as anxious about kind of the decisions you made. You weren't sloppy and you had a great night. In the same vein, you can have a night where you have one drink and the next morning you still feel off. Alcohol has a really weird effect on your brain. There's a lot of just other hormonal chemical stuff that can influence that. And so I guess my advice would be to when you wake up that next morning, when you have those Sunday scaries, really just like taking stock of those and not trying to let the scaries overwhelm and distort the experience you had and or your relationship with yourself. I think really kind of trying to strip some of the self-criticism that can come with a night of letting yourself having too many drinks can be just as bad and debilitating for your mental health as the liquor itself. I think that's solid advice. And I think the difference, what you're not saying is instead of self-criticism, just let it slide. You're saying, look at it sort of objectively, like, 
what happened and like, how can I shift it? But not from a self-blame place, just like, oh, what did I learn and how can I shift it? So we are starting to come up on the end of our time. So I'm wondering, Alona, if you have any last questions and or if Jonah wants to leave our listeners with any particular insights. Yeah, I think it has been full of insights and all kinds of strategies and tools. But Jonah, if you have any other words of wisdom for students, would love to hear it. Yeah, definitely. This has been such a powerful conversation. I love being able to translate my experience to the mission you all are espousing with unlocking college life. I guess the final thing I would say is I really hope whoever is listening to this feels empowered while they're in college and for the rest of their lives to be their authentic self. I think that it can feel really uncomfortable and awkward and challenging to be your authentic, true self, the values, activities, passions, emotions, your you that you bring to the table, especially if it feels unconventional, it feels like a different path than most other folks are doing. I get the hesitancy, why it's scary, comfortable, but you have to trust yourself and that gut feeling. It's crazy. Like there really is I had a podcast guest on my podcast who talked about the kind of microbiome, the gut brain connection, and that like a gut feeling, a gut thought really has academic basis and factual basis. Trusting your gut that who you are is enough and is powerful and the lever that will make you the happiest. And it can be the kind of thing where even if in the first couple weeks of kind of shedding what people are thinking about you, that can be uncomfortable, but your brain's a muscle and you need to train it to get stronger, to kind of overcome some of those worries. And then once you find that sweet spot in that groove, once you kind of find the balance that you need to kind of feel yourself and find the way it relates to how others are in your life, I think it just unlocks so much latent potential. I think it's Nicki Minaj who has the quote where it's, if you don't have critics, you're doing something wrong. I would push back on the folks that really think that being yourself will lead to people like outright disliking you. Maybe it whittles down some of your relationships and those folks in your life just because what brings you joy is kind of mutually exclusive with some other activities and behaviors you want to kind of kick from your life. But what you value and what you want to do is powerful and important. And that brings critics, then it brings critics. You're doing something that is important to you. And that's what I want to end on, which is that college is such a unique opportunity to take advantage of so many areas to grow and find yourself. And don't let others' perceptions of who that person should be take you off the path of who you want to be. Well, and I'm so aware from your contributions today, actually how much pain and cognizance you experience when you were not showing up as your authentic self. So I get it that showing up as our authentic selves can be super scary. And I would encourage everyone listening today to maybe set a small goal as of today, one thing that you will do that is in line more with your authentic self with your values, and see, because that fear may not be as bad as actually the pain and cognitive dissonance and the distress and regret later that you had while you were living, according to some of those shoulds, right? And as you said, we all have them. So this is not unique. And still, I think we can all do better. 
I love that. Really quick, the last thing I want to end on is, Joy, you mentioned this earlier with FOMO, which is that when you really are living your authentic life and doing the activities that brings you joy, I truly believe you are in like an unprecedented level of like flow state. You're in sync. You are completely calibrated with the present and what you're doing. And as you take inventory on living your authentic life, like just be aware of that feeling and how strong that is. Once I, for like a couple of weeks, was just so present and aware and in touch with who I was and where I was at, I hadn't felt that in so long. And that is really what I think happiness. It's just that feeling. And so... Yes, to everyone listening that does it, just notice that awareness and that presence and just how it makes you feel. Thank you so much, Jonah. This has been such a great conversation. And thanks to everyone out there who's been listening. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Thank you both. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review us on your favorite pod platform. Share with your friends if this is making you think about and participate in college differently. We want to hear from you. Connect with us on Instagram and let us know how it's going. This podcast is not professional advice or replacement for therapy. If you need professional advice, you should find it with professionals in your area, such as your primary care physician or therapist.